Welcome to my podcast, Discover the Hidden Potential of Your Mind, and to today's episode about trust. I just wrote this three-part article series on the topic trust, and it's quite long. So I figured I'm going to try a different style of podcast to share this information with you. One of my daughters, my younger daughter, Tia, will just have a nice chat with me, will interview me a little bit on the topic. So thank you, Tia, for taking the time to do this with me. You're very welcome. It's an interesting topic, and it'll be fun to do this interview with you. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. It's an interesting topic, and it's an important one because it affects us in all our relationships. So let me start with a quote by Mira Kirschenbaum. She says, Trust issues plague people today the ways fleas plague country dogs. Funny, right? That sounds like trust issues are common in relationships. Why is that? Yes, you could say that. Um, and the answer is actually simple, I think. We're all human. We're imperfect people who make mistakes. Mm. And other imperfect people whom we're in relationships with will hurt us or disappoint us or even betray us. What is betrayal? Like, how can we define that? Yeah, that's a good question because it seems to be such a big word. But betrayal happens when one person does not take the feelings of another person into account. Every time we do not consider our partner's feelings or fundamental needs, he or she is bound to feel disappointed and then the trust in the relationship diminishes. And my three-part article series on trust is mostly based on a really interesting book by Mira Kirschenbaum called I Love You But I Don't Trust You. And in this book, Kirschenbaum states that between 40% and 70% of couples know they have significant problems with trust. And at least 90% of couples will have a crisis of trust at some point. So any upsetting surprise or discovery that makes us feel vulnerable or makes us feel hurt or unsafe can be experienced as a betrayal. When we have a reasonable expectation and the other person violates it through their choices, we feel disappointed or betrayed. What would you say a reasonable expectation is? Well, that's a good question. So that would be an expectation that is considered normal for an intimate relationship. We all make agreements when we enter into a relationship, some spoken agreements, other implied, for example, to be loyal to each other, to not hurt each other. And uh, major betrayals uh, would, for example, be something like gambling away the couple's entire savings or having an emotional or physical affair. Those are kind of the, the big ones we jump to right away when we hear the word betrayal. Yeah. Um, or tricking your partner into having a baby he or she didn't want. That happens too. That would be probably also a major betrayal. But there are many different ways in which partners disappoint or abandon or betray each other. And smaller betrayals happen when somebody we trust um, doesn't stand up for us, for example. They could speak up for us, but they don't. Or somebody says bad things behind our back. They gossip. That's a betrayal. Somebody takes advantage of us in some way. Or the other person exposes us to a situation we experience as dangerous. Or another one is that the other person keeps important things from the past or the present, a secret. Like some information suddenly comes out years into the relationship. 
that is a betrayal. That could be information around health or their personal history. Or if a person pulls us into financial difficulties or just breaks other major promises or unspoken agreements. So you can see that's bigger betrayals and smaller betrayals. Yeah. So Kirschenbaum says betrayal is a reliability breakdown. And one big betrayal, like a one-time big mistake, is painful, but it's actually often easier to recover from than an endless series of little disappointments or little betrayals. Mm. So you're probably wondering what I mean by that. Um, the series of little betrayals occurs when we're in a relationship with an unreliable partner who makes promises and keeps breaking them. In the case of an unreliable partner, you cannot count on anything. So such little betrayals would be ongoing lies or repeated situations where the other person keeps getting into trouble or keeps failing at something that's expected of an adult. For example, they keep failing at their job or managing their money. Right. I can see that you're using the word betrayal in a wide sense. How does mistrust enter into a relationship in the first place? That's a good question. So one way, which we might not even think of, at least I didn't until I read this in Kirschenbaum's book, in which trust issues enter a relationship is when there are significant differences between the partners in either their background, their personality or their preferences. So let me read you another quote from Kirschenbaum's book. The example she gives is, If you like to plan and your partner likes to just wing it, your partner's way of doing things will seem wrong to you and you'll feel that you can't trust him. Isn't that interesting, right? Yeah. So you will both be mistrustful of each other because you're very different the way you grew up. The planner might feel they cannot count on anything because they need plans. And the more spontaneous person will potentially feel trapped or controlled or stifled and therefore also experience mistrust. And then another risk factor for mistrust is the situation of unequal power between the partners. For example, when one person has more money than the other or more personal power. Having more power can play out as not needing to consult the other partner when decisions are made, that erodes the trust, or the more powerful partner might feel that his or her wishes should trump their partner's wishes. So the partner with less power experiences that they're not treated equally and that their needs and desires and wishes matter less. Are you now thinking that the more powerful partner is in the better position? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I am. Well, not necessarily. Think about this again. Can the person with more money ever be sure that we ever likes him or her for who he or she is? That doubt erodes the trust on their end. But what about people being secretive? Yeah, that's certainly the worst trust killer. When one partner does not know where they stand with the other because that person is secretive or is hiding. And Kirschenbaum describes that person like this. He just plays his cards close to his chest. He's not even open enough to tell you he doesn't know where he stands on the subject of making a commitment. He keeps saying, I don't know, to your questions. He changes the subject when you try to press him, a little, on any personal topic. 
Now, here comes the interesting part. Those differences in how open or secretive someone is can almost not be avoided. How come? Because two people are never identical and one person will ultimately be more open than the other. Okay, I see what you mean by that. So the person who is less open will inevitably begin to seem hidden to their partner. Right. Mm. So you start out together, you're not actually that far apart. But when if you're the one who's more open, more ready and willing and wanting to share, your partner will suddenly seem hidden and secretive. And we all fear that when something is hidden, that it cannot be anything good, right? Yeah, right. So as the more open partner, we start to feel insecure, afraid. So then often the more open partner begins to ask questions or to push a bit or to probe or to invade. And it, it becomes a dance. And the other person will resist, close up more, put up more barriers. And in most relationships, there's one person who's hungry or eager for more openness and the other one who's defending their closeness. It's unfortunately one of those dances we have going on in relationships. So what can we do when our partner is more closed or secretive? Well, if you have a strong need to be with somebody who's open and you're with a hidden person or more hidden person, then you have a compatibility problem. So what can you do, right? Kirschenbaum feels that a simple agreement can help to shift the dynamics of mistrust and the dynamics between one person is open and the other one isn't. And that commitment is... I will open up if you do not slam me. That would be the more private partner making that commitment. I'm doing this. Please don't slam me. And the other person's agreement would be, I won't slam you if you open up. So the partner who seeks more openness has to agree to that. And I've been the person who responds with being upset at hearing certain truths. Right? The person who slams their partner. And not just in love relationships, but also with you as a mother, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in order to encourage you to be more courageous and to tell uncomfortable truths, I had to re reward you for a while when you were a child for being honest. Do you remember that? Yeah, for sure I do. So the same applies to our intimate relationships. We might want to encourage the other person to be more honest. That means the person who has, who is hidden has to swallow their fears and take risks. And the other person has to be okay with hearing upsetting news and not freaking out about them. Mm. So according to Kirschenbaum, we actually make two mistakes. She says, we get upset at what the other person has revealed. And we give the other person the third degree about when they first knew this. And why they didn't tell us sooner? And what else are they hiding? Mm. So in another block of mine, I've written about what's called being a lie invitee. That's a term the couples therapists Alan Bader and Peter Pearson use. When our partner tells the truth and we get angry or we attack or we act like poor victims that he or she is doing this to us, we make the other person feel guilty We're not helping our partner at all to be truthful. We become what they call a lie invitee. So instead of encouraging honest conversations, we encourage lies and secrets with our response. 
And it's not always easy to respond that way, for sure. But unfortunately, we cannot command openness. We can only encourage or reward it. So instead of responding with anger, our first goal needs to be to welcome the honesty. But how would one do that? Like, what would you say or do? Well, um, we might want to say something like, I really welcome your openness. Thank you for sharing. I'm grateful. Even though I'm struggling to hear this information, right? Mm. Not hiding that we're challenged with what's coming up. Not hiding our true feelings, but leading with that gratitude and welcoming the openness. I actually just heard a really interesting interview with Dr. Alexandra Solomon in which she talks about being an invitation or showing up with an invitation rather than shutting the other person down. And she mentions something called constrained questions. It's apparently an old school family therapy concept. So let's say our partner lies to us and there would be two ways of bringing that up. We can ask what most of us do. Why did you lie to me? When I say that to you, how does that feel? Why did you lie to me? I feel attacked and a lot of aggression is coming towards me. Right. You feel defensive, right? Or I could ask, what kept you from being truthful with me? That would be a constrained question. Yeah, and that sort of, it shifts, it makes the blame equal rather than attacking one partner. Right, right. So the first question is an invitation to defensiveness, an accusation, you felt accused, and it's coming from a victim place as far as I'm concerned, right? I'm saying you did something to me. The second one, what kept you from being truthful with me, is coming from a place of greater curiosity and invites to work together on understanding what's Mm. going on in our relationship, that truth is not easily unfolding. Perhaps um, something does not feel safe enough in the relationship or perhaps something is unhealed in the partner who's lying. But instead of being judgmental about it and making it wrong, I can be curious about it. So my invitation is let's look at this together. Right. Yeah, I totally see what she means. It's interesting. Yeah, I found that idea of restrained questions really fabulous because it allows us to unpack together as a couple (laughs) what's going on and to figure out how to change this as a team. Mm. It invites a conversation in which we share responsibility because we hide things when we don't feel safe or good enough. So that's what uh, needs to be healed. Yeah, so I believe that you can't have relationships without disappointments because it's part of human nature to hurt others. You cannot have a solid love relationship, though, without trust, because trust nourishes the relationship. Only when you trust each other can you fully relax and be open and feel safe enough to let the other one see your true self, be vulnerable, you know, show your own inner child. And according to Kirschenbaum, the trust healing process consists of finding ways to radically take the other person into account. I really like how she phrased that. Mm. Often right after betrayal or broken trust, we want to understand why it happened. And oddly enough, that has us more invested in the relationship than we were perhaps in a long time. And that has to do with the fact um, that by nature, we're designed as trusting creatures. We want to trust. Really? 
Doesn't that depend on how we grew up and what experiences we had with others, though? Yes. Um, I was talking more evolutionary, not so much um, in regards to our personal history. Um, if you think about this, our ancestors could only survive because they worked together, right? And in order to work together, they needed to trust each other. So it's an evolutionary instinctual response that we want mm -hmm. to trust. And according to Kirschenbaum, there's a trust-hungry part and a betrayal-vulnerable part in all of us. Trust is actually our default mode. Unless we have a reason not to trust, we will default to trusting. But when something happens that triggers our fears of betrayal, that betrayal-vulnerable part will awaken and can cause quite some destruction. So let's look at how to decide whether to go or to stay in a relationship in which the trust has been broken. When there are trust issues in a relationship, the question arises if the trust can be restored. If you had already been thinking about ending the relationship, a betrayal or mistrust can provide an excuse to leave that relationship. It all depends on what the relationship was like before the betrayal happened. So Kirschenbaum writes, most people who leave a relationship right after betrayal have regrets if a relationship had been good before that point. And that makes sense to me, right? We're at the beginning, we're still so angry. So if we decide to leave right after the betrayal has happened, we might regret it in the end. So the deciding factor is whether the relationship was otherwise good. Exactly. So before deciding to heal and restore the broken trust, we offer recommends that you ask yourself six questions. Do you want to hear them? Yeah, totally. So question number one is, would you want this relationship if the trust could be restored? So that gets you to examine what the other areas of your relationship are like. What has your sex life been like before the loss of trust? Can you still have fun together? Or if you have kids, do you still enjoy co-parenting? Then question number two is, does the fact that this betrayal happened ruin everything for you? For some people, the betrayal changes at such a fundamental level how they see their partner that they cannot imagine wanting to be with them even after their anger has died down. I see how that could happen. So if you're one of those people, then you are better off ending the relationship. Question number three is, can you imagine the possibility of forgiveness? The one thing we have to understand about forgiveness is that it isn't just for sherry on top. It's not just for sherry on top of the Sunday of reconciliation. That sounds so spiritual. Can you tell me more about it? Well, it's actually more common sense. I'm not talking about forgiveness in a religious sense of saying you've wronged me, but I forgive you anyways because I'm a good human being, right? I'm looking at it as something that frees us from the ties of resentment and anger. Those are energetic ties that bind us into the past. And forgiveness is essential for all our relationships and for trust. You cannot trust somebody whom you haven't forgiven and just important, as importantly, you cannot trust somebody who hasn't forgiven you. So forgiveness is actually a life-affirming act. It's a gift you give yourself. 
It's not about letting the other person off the hook, like so many people think, but it's about giving yourself freedom from the feelings of anger and resentment and hurt that have been actually poisoning you. Mm. Forgiveness is also not an intellectual process. You cannot just decide at an intellectual level to forgive, but it's something that happens in your heart. It's a softening and opening in the heart. Instead of your heart feeling closed and hard because of anger or fear, it opens and relaxes when we forgive and let go. Okay. Okay, I think I get it. What other questions should you ask yourself? Question number four is, does the person you mistrust care about how you feel? Has he or she gone out of their way to show you that they care? If not, well, that's some alarm bells should be going off <laughs> because then he or she will not be able to work with you during the trust recovering process and you're better off leaving or letting them go. And that gets us to question number five. Can the other person work on the relationship with you? Because rebuilding trust can only happen when the two people work on it together. That means the partners need to talk to each other they need to share information about hurt feelings and talk about things that are difficult to say or to hear. Mm. Yeah, And if one or both people are conflict avoidant, right, they're so peace-loving, they just want the relationship to be easy and trouble-free, the process of rebuilding trust cannot unfold very successfully. And Kirschenbaum actually names two main reasons why we're afraid to talk to our partners. One is the fear of being attacked or blamed. Nobody likes to be attacked or blamed. So you need to commit to not attacking, not blaming, not yelling, and instead focus on making each other feel safe. So we really need to be aware when those power parts of anger and blame take over to protect us and they're running the show. These feelings, anger, blame, aggression, they come up to make us feel better, to protect us, to protect the vulnerability inside. But a coach who works with parts can help you to address these power selves and guide you to communicate from a vulnerable place with your partner. And the second reason why we're afraid to talk to our partners is that we might feel that we won't get a chance to express ourselves. Sometimes people have very different talking styles one person might be more like a fast thinker and talker the other person might need time to process their thoughts and express them so the second commitment is to listen and to give each other equal talking time because you need to discover together what the mistakes were how you both contributed to them happening and how to avoid them in the future and i'll talk a little bit more about that um, in a little bit i first want to share question number six Mm. question number six is what do i have to lose if you can get to the point where you can honestly say i don't have anything to lose the worst that can happen is that the person who has betrayed me will show that he or she hasn't changed and if this is the case then it's worth staying to work on the relationship because if he or she ultimately can't or won't do what is needed to deserve your trust and to make you feel safe you can see it as his or her way of letting you go and you can move on at that point that makes sense actually you've talked more about the perspective of the person who was betrayed what about the other partner the one who broke the trust by what they did 
what does it take on their end to repair the trust? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, the, that person has to be willing to hang in there and to really listen and understand. Because often the betrayed partner is not primarily looking for an apology. That's a good start. But um, that partner does not need to hear how sorry you are and how bad you feel about what you did. That might even make them feel angry because you're making it all about yourself. Right. Instead, they need you as a person who disappointed or betrayed them in some form to really understand how their life has changed through your choices because their life will have changed in a significant way. So that means let your partner share the impact the break of trust had on them and on their life. Mm -hmm. So listen really closely and then repeat this impact back to her or him. Mm. That allows your betrayed spouse to feel seen and heard and truly understood. And that's so much more valuable for the healing process than an apology from you. So overall, mistrust can certainly heal. Uh, one of the dynamics, though, that prevents it from healing is excessive anger. Well, I know I'd be angry if my partner betrayed me, especially if it was a major betrayal. Absolutely. Anger is understandable and natural when we've been betrayed. And the angry part inside of us, as I mentioned earlier, is naturally trying to protect us. And often yelling does make us feel stronger and therefore safer. Um, it can also be somewhat of a test to see if the other person cares enough to hang in there while we're furious about their betrayal, right? <laughs> yeah. At the same time, it's unfortunately also a test of the other person's ability to withstand discouragement. It's a question of how much yelling or anger can that person takes. Some people grew up with anger and they've learned to be okay with it or they've learned to avoid it and they are very sensitive to it. So the less anger we engage in, the faster the healing happens. Mm. And you might wonder what is normal and what would be excessive anger. Yeah, I was just thinking that. So Kirschenbaum actually has guidelines in her book. She says, if the betrayal was a major betrayal, there's most likely still unlimited anger by the end of the first month. But by the end of three months, you should be able to have a sane, productive conversation for the purpose of accomplishing joint goals. So, for example, if you have kids together, you should be able to talk about the kids and their needs and activities together. And then by the end of six months, there might still be flashes of anger, but it should no longer be your operating mode. By the end of the first year, you're ideally no longer angry. Trust might not be completely restored at that point, but you feel you're on your way to trusting. And then by the end of the second year, trust has been restored and you can now talk about the betrayal without getting angry and upset. So those are just some guidelines she gives us that, that might be useful. The things we do to make us feel safer, like yelling, using cruel words, coldness, or distancing ourselves won't restore trust. What can you do with all that anger? Does Mira Kirschenbaum have solutions for that situation? Yes. If you find it hard to not express your anger to your partner, not to flood them constantly with that emotion, one thing you could do is you can keep an anger journal and just write about it. Or you can vent to somebody else about the betrayal, like a coach or therapist. 
or if you are with your partner and you can't help feeling really angry as you're talking to them, you can give yourself a timeout. That means you leave a room, right? You take a break from the conversation. You let your partner know, I need a timeout. I'll be back in 20 minutes or 30 minutes. And most likely they'll be relieved when you do that. And when you get back to the conversation, it will be so much more productive. Mm. I also like two other suggestions Kirschenbaum makes. She suggests to vent in emails <laughs> and give your partner the choice whether they want to read the emails or not. It, the title of the email can be venting. And if your partner wants to read it, they can. If it's too much for them, then at least you've gotten it off your chest. She also talks about having a Vesuvius. Like the volcano Vesuvius. That sounds interesting. <laughs> yeah, it is with volcano. So how this works is you ask your partner, how long can you listen to me venting? And let's say your partner says two minutes. Then you set a timer for two minutes or however long your partner can listen. And you get your anger off your chest for those two minutes. Okay. So... Once the first anger has subsided, how do we rebuild that trust? You wrote about that in part three of your blog article, didn't you? Yeah, that's right, I did. So let's talk about healing the trust. When we have been betrayed, we might think that we have discovered the truth about the other person, right? Now they've shown us their true colors. <laughs> but all we've done is we've discovered one truth about them. We're all people with admirable qualities and people who also act from their so-called shadow sides. We all act from conscious parts in us, but also from fears and suppressed unconscious energies that we've learned to disown. So when somebody has betrayed us in a way, they've hardly ever set out to do this on purpose, right? They didn't go out with the intention of I'm going to hurt and betray my partner, but usually they've acted from their own needs, their own wants and desires without considering their impact on others. That's where the betrayal occurs from that inability or unwillingness to consider how this affects others. Mm. So healing with trust means figuring out together what led to the betrayal. You both want to make changes in the relationship in a way that makes another betrayal less likely. You want to have problem identifying and problem solving conversations. To me, that still sounds like the betrayed person is being blamed for what happened to them as well. Right, I can see why you would think that. But that's not what I mean at all. This is not about finding fault with either partner. It's about understanding the unconscious dynamics in our relationships. So let's be very clear. If somebody is listening who just experienced a betrayal, a betrayal is not your fault. A betrayal is like a mugging or a burglary. Just as it's not your fault that you were mugged or your house was broken into, it's not your fault that your partner broke your trust. However, just like you want to secure your house after it was broken into, you also want to secure the relationship more. So another burglary or another betrayal does not happen. Okay, I see what you mean by that. So once things have calmed down emotionally, you can examine how each of you has contributed to a situation that led to a broken trust. And you might not have contributed equally to it, but there will be a percentage in which you have co-created this experience. Maybe one partner uh, has created it 75%, the other one 25%. Doesn't matter. The 
important thing is that there will be some problems, will be, will be issues your partner needs to deal with. Others you might need to take responsibility for. You can both make changes that will make a future betrayal less likely. And Kirschenbaum actually shares very openly in her book that many years ago, her husband had an emotional affair. And I'd like to read out that paragraph from her book because I really like how she analyzes it and how she looks at it. She says, I had in fact made it far too easy for him to go off and have an emotional affair. I was very busy. I was very impatient. I was very critical of him. I was very unsupportive when my husband was going through a difficult time himself. Somehow I had withdrawn from him. My husband's part in the problem was that he didn't know how to get my attention and let me know what he needed and how we were going off the rails. My part in the problem was that I ignored his needs and sent us off the rails. So even though she was the betrayed partner, she's taking responsibility for her part, for the way she showed up in the relationship. And it doesn't excuse what her husband did at all, but it gives them something concrete to work on and change. She mentions her husband did not know how to communicate to her what he needed. Is that a common problem? Absolutely. From working with my clients, I would say the inability of one or both partners to express their needs creates huge problems in our relationships because we usually grow up believing that as an adult we shouldn't be needy right mm. you've heard that too um, but fact is people are only as needy as their unmet needs living a healthy relationship means finding out what your needs are and believing that you deserve to have your needs met and expressing them appropriately to your partner and some needs we have uh, independent needs and others are dependent needs. What do you mean by that? Well, that's a distinction Jason Gaddis from the Relationship School in Boulder, Colorado makes. Independent needs, as the word says, we can meet ourselves. For example, um, one of my needs is I need to exercise every day. And that's an independent need because it's my responsibility. Nobody can do it for me. Mm. Hmm? Now, a dependent need we can only meet with the cooperation of the other person. Mm -hmm. For example, I need to connect with my partner every day. We need our partner to want to connect as well, right? And then maybe another distinction we should talk about, that some of our needs are negotiable for us. So in a way, they're more wants than needs. For example, I'm willing to skip a day of exercise here or there. Hmm, yeah. So I'm, I'm willing to be flexible with that need. But then other needs are non-negotiable due to our values. For example, a non-negotiable need might be, I need my partner to be monogamous. That's a common one. Or I want to have children. If my partner doesn't, then yeah, we need to part ways because this is non-negotiable for me. So how does one have successful conversations about each other's needs and what has to change in the relationship? The key to expressing our needs and to problem solving is not to get defensive. Kirschenbaum says, refuse to hear blame and do your best to hear the underlying unmet needs. Um, 
so doctors John and Julie Godman have also pointed out that underneath a complaint is always an unmet need. I love that perspective because it helps us keep in mind when somebody is complaining to look for the need or needs underneath. It's about connecting to those unmet needs. Mm. And it's not up to you to judge your partner's needs or you don't need to justify whether you've tried to meet those needs. It's about striving to hear the need and to find out how you can actually meet it um, if it's a need that involves you or how you can give your partner time and space to meet their own needs. Interesting? Yeah. All right. So Kirschenbaum actually names six top solutions. She gives six recommendations that help rebuild the trust. Would you like to hear about them? Totally, yeah. All right. So... Number one is learn to listen. Because you might think, well, we are listening. But really, instead of truly listening until the other person feels understood, we tend to jump to conclusions, assume something, we explain, we defend ourselves, we interrupt, we might criticize or minimize, we blame or we feel blamed. Listening means really being present and hearing. And you show you have heard and understood by reflecting back what you have heard. You could, for example, say, um, did I get this right? You feel dot, 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 fill in the blank. Okay, so something like, did I get this right? You feel scared or worried or excluded? Right, exactly like that. And then recommendation two is, Make each other feel the other matters. And listening, of course, is one way of making each other feel important. Another way is making time for each other or reaching out to your partner to connect. Number three, solution number three to rebuild trust is be fair. So when one of you feels resentment because something does not seem fair, the other person needs to hear this and they need to at least try their best to make things more balanced or more fair. Recommendation number four, learn how to make decisions together. So this gets us into thinking, what can we do when we're struggling to find compromises in regards to what I want as opposed to my partner? And Kirschenbaum um, makes an original suggestion that you can use numbers from one to ten to determine how important something is to you. One means you don't care much and 10 means it's really extremely important to you. So then the partner with the highest number gets to make the choice. And if it's equally important to you, you've got, got the same number, you can take turns making decisions. What's also important is to talk about why something is important to you, what it means to you, because that's where we often don't understand each other. But that way your partner can really understand your experience. And talking why something is important is often about explaining a little bit your history, your values. Hmm. So what if one partner cares more about pleasing the other than getting what they want? Right. Yes. When there's a strong pleaser part in one of the partners, and usually one person has a stronger pleaser than the other, and if that pleaser is running the show, that person really needs to learn to get some separation from that part so that they do not always give in, but that they put and don't always put their needs last, but put them first, 
Because if they always put their own needs on the back burner, they grow secretly resentful that their needs aren't met. Right? So usually with a strong pleaser, we're operating from beliefs that our needs don't matter and it's not safe for us to displease another person and um, we need to make others happy, that sort of thing. To be liked, to be loved, to be accepted. Yeah. We've got two more rules. Rule number five is don't belittle. That means treat each other with respect, no matter what you think about the other person's thoughts or needs or fears or feelings, because nobody likes to be treated as if they're stupid or crazy or unimportant. And then rule number six, don't be controlling. Now that's a tricky one. Um, I've got a controlling part myself. And what's also tricky is that our needs can be experienced by the other person as control. Let's take an example. Yeah? I can mm -hmm. see that you're wondering what that means. So let's say I have a need um, to plan my weekly schedule. And my partner, who likes freedom and more spontaneity, feels restricted and controlled by that need. And then, of course, the more controlled they feel, the more likely it is that they will do everything to escape that control. What do you do in that case? Give up my needs? Like, Yeah, good question. <laughs> so if your partner experiences your needs as you trying to control him or her, it does not mean that you have to throw your needs overboard. That would be acting in line with your own pleaser, right? Yeah, and we yeah. just talked about that. That's not healthy. But it means that you have to have a conversation and make sure you explain your feelings and needs. You also need to express your needs as requests, not demands. And after a betrayal, um, the betraying partner often feels insecure and is trying to feel more secure by shacking up on their partner. So that controlling energy is quite alive after we've just experienced the breakdown of trust. But rather than insisting on needing to shack up on the other person, the betrayed partner could try to come from a more vulnerable place. And I know this is not easy at all. Yeah. But mm. what if we, for example, said, I still feel scared and vulnerable and it would help me to feel safe or safer if you were more open and shared more with me. And I'll do my best not to get upset, but to make you glad you shared doesn't sound easy, no. really vulnerable. I'd yeah, it's for sure isn't easy. Both partners need a lot of courage and willingness to lead from vulnerability in their interactions with each other. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it's certainly worth trying because when we lead from vulnerability, we have a person opens up and is so much more ready to hear us and to meet our needs. So in the aftermath of a betrayal, the temptation to be controlling is great. But you would have to ask yourself this. Can you actually control what you're trying to control? If your partner chooses to do what you do not want them to do, won't he or she find a way to do it and then just keep it secret? That's true. And if it is something you can actually control... It might make you feel safer in the short term, but not help you trust your partner in the long run. However, if you don't try to control them, it's a win-win. How so? <laughs> because either he or she shows that they're trustworthy, 
That's mm. a win-win, right? Or they show that they cannot be trusted. And in that second case, isn't it better to know sooner rather than later that they're not prepared to be open and honest? Yeah. So another win-win. And if somebody is listening and is still thinking, I need to control my partner because they won't respect my requests and they won't be honest. Well, then you're actually saying that this person has radically different values than you, but you want them in your life anyway. In that case, you are not honoring your own values and needs. So for the sake of our essential or authentic self, or for the sake of our personal growth, the decision whether to continue with a relationship or not needs to be one of self-love and self-respect. And the question is, am I in integrity with my own values staying in this relationship or not? Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> quite heavy, right? <laughs> so let's maybe end on a more encouraging note. If our values overlap enough with our partners and we're able to work through a betrayal together with him or her, we can rebuild the trust as a team. And in that case, the relationship usually ends up being stronger than before. There's this beautiful saying, the broken places are stronger where they heal. I like that. Yeah, it's really powerful. And you have certainly given me some food for thought around the topic of trust. So if somebody's been listening who would like to work through a betrayal, either by themselves or with a partner, what can they do? Well, they can contact me for a free phone consultation. My name is Angelica. My phone number is 905-286-9466. Or they can email me to greendoorrelaxation at yahoo.ca. And I've also got an online booking option where they can book the 20-minute free phone consultation on my website. So if they go to greendoorrelaxation.net, there's more information there. Well, thank you so much, Tia, for being here with me and making this a fun conversation. My pleasure. And to all of you out there, until next time and have a great day.